pray together and then get stuck into that chapter. Uh, Our gracious Father, you say that your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And so we pray that by your spirit you would uh, help us to see, that you would help us understand uh, who you are and what you love and how you want us to live. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, all the best books on leadership, uh, if you've ever kind of dug into that kind of massive uh, wormhole, uh, all of the best books say that if you want someone to buy into your project with their whole heart, you need to set a vision. You need to paint a picture for them uh, of what it is that you're trying to achieve, something that's going to get them alongside you, something that's going to help them buy in. Now, that's why you, uh, you'll hear armies heading off to war talk about the battle to win hearts and minds. That's why you'll hear football coaches you know, remind their teams of the glory that comes with winning the premiership and getting to lift the, the trophy. That's why corporations spend buckets of money on vision and values processes. It's why great leaders are called visionaries. You see, without convincing people to buy into your vision, their participation in whatever project it is that you're running will at best be kind of half-hearted and perfunctory and, and really you risk failure. You need to set a vision for people to buy into. As we kicked off our little series in the book of Jonah last week, I suggested that this Old Testament book... It's all about evangelism. It's about uh, God's heart for the lost. It's a book that challenges us to join in God's great project of proclaiming the gospel of his grace to the ends of the earth. That's what Jonah's about. And evangelism is is the duty of every Christian. Uh, We said that last week, didn't we? Evangelism is the duty of every Christian, but it's something that we noted last week is difficult for just about every Christian as well. And chapter 2 of Jonah, I think, is designed to hold a mirror up to our faces and ask us to consider why that's the case. Why do we struggle so much to share the news of God's amazing grace to us in the Gospel? And this chapter does it by showing us a prophet, a a missionary really, who doesn't buy into God's vision for mission. The question this chapter wants us to ask is, do we? Do we buy into God's vision for mission? Last week we left Jonah treading water in the middle of the Mediterranean. Uh, He's probably pretty tired by now. Um, God has called his prophet from Israel to go to Nineveh, uh, the capital of Assyria. It's the great world power of the 8th century BC. Uh, The Ninevites, we saw, were a wicked, violent people and their evil had come up before the face of God. And so, he appointed Jonah to go to Nineveh and to tell them that his judgment was coming against them. Jonah, however, we saw, didn't like that idea and so rather than go to Nineveh, 
We watched him head in exactly the opposite direction, running away, he thinks, from the presence of God and away, he hopes, from what God has asked him to do. But Jonah learnt very quickly that running from God isn't a good idea. He tries to run by hopping on a boat to Tarshish, across the Mediterranean, but it turns out that you can't run away from the God who made the sea by getting on a boat. Who would have guessed? And so the Lord sends a storm. Uh, It threatens the lives of all the men on the ship. Uh, Jonah knows that the God who controls all of creation has sent judgment on him and so he tells the sailors to throw him overboard, to sacrifice him so that they can be saved. And as Jonah sinks like a stone beneath the waves, descending into the depths of God's judgment, he finds out that even here in the heart of the ocean, he hasn't escaped God's presence. There is nowhere that you can go to escape from God and his judgment. But neither is there anywhere that you can go to escape from God's grace. God's determined to show grace to Nineveh and he's determined to show it through this reluctant prophet, Jonah. And so God does what God is in the business of doing. He saves Jonah. As we said last week, and as Jonah says at the end of this passage, the the big point of the book really, salvation belongs to the Lord. He saves Jonah and it is a strange kind of salvation. That's our first point. Jonah's strange salvation. God sends Jonah a a saviour in the form of a great fish. Uh, We see that uh, in verse 1, verse 17 rather, of chapter 1. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Uh, Now at this point, it seems to many people that the story of Jonah has jumped the shark... Good. I'm scraping the bottom of the barrel now. All of the best fish puns were last week. Um, It's a bit too much at this point, though, isn't it? Uh, To our modern minds, it seems that this is the point where Jonah crosses from fact to fiction. And so our temptation can be to sort of rationalise as Christians. We, We like it when we hear stories in the news of people who kind of tried you know, get eaten by a whale, we, we go, oh, maybe there's like a humpback whale could fit a person in its mouth. When we start to do that, though, we've missed the point of the passage. This is meant to stretch the limits of believability. Because by using such a strange saviour to rescue Jonah, God shows us very clearly that salvation is entirely in his hands. Salvation belongs to the Lord. I think about how completely lost Jonah was at this point. He's been thrown into the water, his ship has sailed over the horizon, all he can see in any direction is the water. He's not a good swimmer, swimming wasn't part of the Hebrew public school curriculum and so it doesn't take him long before he's exhausted and he starts sinking down beneath the waves. He tries to get a mouthful of air, but he gets water instead. His lungs start to fill. What does Jonah contribute here to his salvation? Nothing, does he? And God doesn't, you know, power him up to swim like Ian Thorpe and, and you know, 
feet like flippers and power his way back to shore. He's entirely a passenger here. He can't claim that he contributed to his rescue in any way. He's, he's a passenger. He can't boast. And God doesn't send a passing ship to fish him out of the sea, does it? Does God? If he did, what would Jonah do? He'd give credit to the ship, wouldn't he? But a giant fish in the middle of the Mediterranean can only come down to God's incredible grace. This fish, in this exact spot at this exact time, taking a big gulp. Such a strange saviour in the absence of all hope shows that shows Jonah and shows the Ninevites and shows us, really, the great grace of Jonah's God and our God. And just like Jonah's strange saviour, God gave us a strange saviour too, didn't he? When we were completely beyond all hope, God gave his son to die in weakness and in shame. A strange way of saving people. It is strange, but it is perfectly suited to our desperate need. And God does it so that we can't boast. We contribute nothing. As Paul says in Ephesians 2, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Just like Jonah, our our salvation is all of God and none of us. We are all sinking beneath the waves of a judgment that is our own making. All of us are facing God's judgment and wrath because we've run from him. But no matter how far we've run, God is still there and he provides a saviour that is exactly the saviour that we need. Jonah needs a fish. We need a crucified Christ. Jonah recognises that this salvation must come from God. It's completely uh, his doing, out of his grace. And so from verse 2, in chapter 2, we get to hear Jonah's response. And it's a strange song. And it's at this point uh, that uh, Jonah actually becomes a musical. Uh, Jonah starts to sing a strange song. Uh, So you can imagine the stage... Uh, It's pitch black, it's it's shrouded in darkness and then a single spotlight beams down on a lonely figure uh, who's sitting ankle deep in whale stomach juice. Uh, He's surrounded by rotting fish, he's draped with seaweed and he begins to sing his strange song. From verse 2, he says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me. I'm not going to sing it for you, it's better if I don't. Uh, Out of the belly of Sheol I cried and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. And then I said, I'm driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I vowed I will pay, 
salvation belongs to the Lord. Uh, It's a strange song, and it's a strange song not because of its theology. Uh, In in fact, the the things that Jonah says about God are all true. Uh, There's a bunch of uh, quotes in there from Psalms. It's kind of this patchwork of different Psalms that Jonah knows. Uh, His whole song is a psalm of thanksgiving. You can kind of classify psalms into different sort of psalms. This is a, a psalm of thanksgiving. It's not strange because of its theology. I think it's strange because even though its theology is good in the abstract, in the context of the whole book, it doesn't seem like Jonah knows what he's talking about. See, Jonah's problem is that Jonah doesn't get God's grace. He he doesn't understand it. He doesn't understand the radical, undeserved nature of God's salvation. And seeing that, I think, is actually the key to understanding the whole book of Jonah. So look at what Jonah says. As as Jonah begins sinking down under the waves, taking what he thinks are going to be his final breaths, he realises how desperate his need is. He finds himself, he says, in the belly of Sheol. The sea is becoming his tomb. He's sinking into the deep beyond hope of any help. Uh, The waters close in to take his life, the seaweed wraps itself around him, his life faints away and he knows that this is God's judgment on him. God has cast him into the deep. He says it's God's waves that are dragging him down. He's going down into the place of judgment. And it's from there he cries out to God for help. And it seems that Jonah is very happy for God to save him to show grace to him when it's his life on the line. Undoubtedly, he's in this situation because of his own sin, and yet he doesn't utter any word of confession or repentance, does he? And there's not a word about his own place in the events that brought him here. He doesn't acknowledge that he's been running from God, that he hasn't repented while he's on board the ship. And yet, as he sinks down into the depths of the ocean, God breaks in. Jonah calls for help and the Lord answers. God hears his cry and he brings Jonah's life up from the pit. Right at the gates of Sheol, God sends a great fish to save him. Even right down in the depths where Jonah says he's driven from God's sight after all that he's done, God is there ready to show grace to this reluctant prophet. He's been snatched from the jaws of death. He only has God to thank for it. And yet, do you see that Jonah's prayer is really about himself? The focus of Jonah's prayer is on him, uh, his remembrance of God, his prayer, his vows, his sacrifices. He is the subject of most of those sentences, isn't he? Uh, God gets one line in verse 6. Otherwise, Jonah is all about himself. In fact, in the end, he he ends his prayer with a rather flattering comparison between himself and those who worship idols. You see in verse 8, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Again, what he says is 100% true, isn't it? 
Uh, Clinging to vain idols is futile. You will find no grace, no steadfast, unfailing, committed love with idols, nothing that we give our time or attention or energy to, uh, other than God, will satisfy us with steadfast, unfailing love. That can only be found in the living God. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah knows that everyone who clings to idols forfeit their hope of the eternal joy of being sustained and saved by the grace of God. But here's the problem. In this favourable comparison between himself and idol worshippers, who are the idol worshippers that he's talking about? Who's he comparing himself to? Think about where we're up to in the story. Who are the other characters that we've met so far? He's talking about the sailors in chapter 1, isn't he? Those idol-worshipping pagans that he hopped on board with. But I'm not like them, thinks Jonah. I'll sacrifice and I'll vow to the Lord. I'm a Hebrew. That's what he told the sailors, wasn't it? I'm a Hebrew. I'm one of God's covenant people and that's why God has saved me. The irony is that while Jonah's sinking beneath the waves, as we saw last week, the sailors had turned to God for mercy. Uh, They'd called on him, they'd offered sacrifices, they'd vowed vows and what did God do? He saved them. He showed them the steadfast love and the grace that Jonah is taking for granted. Because salvation really does belong to the Lord. He's the source of salvation and he will save whoever asks. No matter how far they've run, regardless of what they've done, no matter how close to sinking down beneath the waves, God is always there. He's always ready to give grace to anyone who repents, who confesses their sin and turns back to him. And for all Jonah's talk, I don't think he gets that. Jonah doesn't get grace. Again, his song mentions himself more than it mentions God. And what he never mentions in his song is his sin. He never says he's turning away from his sin. In short, Jonah never repents, does he? Uh, In his book, uh, A Passion for Holiness, J.I. Packer, Um, who I mentioned last week as well, Uh, he sums up kind of the biblical elements of repentance and he's thought very hard about this alliteration but he says uh, repentance involves realistic recognition that we've wronged God, regretful remorse at having dishonoured God, reverent requesting of God's pardon, resolute renunciation of sin and requisite restitution to those we've hurt. How many of those do you see in Jonah's song? don't see any of them, do you? Why not? It's because Jonah thinks he deserves God's salvation. Jonah thinks God has rescued him because he's an Israelite. And because he'll pay what he's vowed, he thinks he deserves God's rescue. And that's why we'll see in coming chapters, he has no compassion on Nineveh. He's seen God's absolute power. He's realised he can't outrun God. Even in the depths of the sea, God is there. God's power is enough to make him go to Nineveh. 
he figures he's really got no other choice. He knows that salvation belongs to the Lord. The Lord is determined that Jonah is going to preach salvation to the Ninevites. But while his head knows the truth, his heart definitely isn't in it. Because Jonah doesn't get God's grace. And I wonder if that helps us explain our reluctance in evangelism. Could it be that deep down we don't actually get God's grace either? Maybe we think that God has saved us because he saw our potential. God's lucky to have us on his side. No, he just needed to give us a little bit of a boost and then we're off on our own steam. Now, we're from good Christian families after all, aren't we? It's in our blood to be Christians. And other people, those other people, they don't really deserve it. Maybe our friends do because we like our friends. But those other people with all those things that they do, they don't really deserve God's salvation like we do. And so we turn the other way when an opportunity comes up to share the gospel with them. See, if we've ever looked at someone and thought, I don't want God to forgive them. I want, to, I want them to experience God's judgment, not God's grace. If we've ever said that, then I don't think we've really understood just how radical and undeserved God's grace is to us. We don't grasp just how much we don't deserve any of God's goodness to us. It's very easy to look down on Jonah in this book, but that's not what the point of the book is. As uncomfortable as it might be, the point is that we're actually meant to see something of ourselves in Jonah. Something that we don't like. Something that we shouldn't like. Jonah shows us a selfishness, an inherent dislike for outsiders that actually lurks deep in all of our hearts. We naturally don't want to share the gospel because it's for us. It's not for them out there. Jonah doesn't get grace and so he doesn't want to go to Nineveh and preach the gospel to them. And so how can we make sure for us that we do get grace? How can we avoid being like Jonah? Well, the trick is, I think, the trick for remembering grace and being gracious to outsiders is to remember what we're like apart from God's grace to us. Paul writes to Titus about the importance of remembering what we're like apart from God's grace. Here's what Paul writes to Titus. He says, For we ourselves were once foolish disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That's Paul's description of us, of himself included, this good pharisaical Jew, before experiencing God's grace. But when the goodness and loving kindness of our Saviour appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, not even our best works, but according to his own mercy. 
Practically, I think, something that can help is a regular practice of confession and repentance. A daily practice. Uh, That should be something that we do as Christians anyway, uh, but we don't do it enough, I think. If you're like me, then your confession and your repentance is is actually pretty lame, uh, pretty non-specific about what sins we've committed and not scratching too hard beneath the surface because that's a bit uncomfortable, not really wanting to confess because that means that we're in the wrong. But not confessing means that we don't get the, the privilege of basking in God's incredible grace when we know we're forgiven and we see God's great mercy on us and we get to thank him and praise him for it. Let me give you a couple of suggestions about what ongoing repentance and confession might look like. First of all, repent of every sin. Every sin. When you sin, say sorry to God. Do it straight away. Don't leave it and wallow in self-pity and guilt. Don't be hesitant and think God doesn't want to hear from you. He does. He invites us to come to him in repentance. So apologise to him as you do reject the sin And don't hold on to any sense of enjoyment or satisfaction from that sin. Repent of every sin. Second, repent of every temptation. A temptation isn't sin, but repentance means turning away from sin and to God. So in repentance from temptation, you train yourself to reject sin, don't you? When you feel the pull of temptation, say no to that sin... Pray for help, turn to Jesus and flee from temptation. Thirdly, repent every day. Uh, Take time every day to reflect and repent of any sin that you're aware of. Uh, Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal your sin to you. It's a scary thing to pray, isn't it? Imagine if he does. If you need to help focus, you can write it down on a bit of paper Uh, And then picture that record of your sins being nailed to the cross with the Lord Jesus. And fourthly, repent every week. Uh, As Alon prayed this morning, every week at church, your prayers include a prayer of confession together. Make the most of that time. You know, don't use the time to close your eyes and think about what you're going to have for lunch afterwards. Actually pray. Rejoice with your Christian family at God's forgiveness. Repent of every sin, repent of every temptation. Repent every day and repent every week. And the point isn't to wallow in self-hatred and guilt, it is to rejoice in the fact that God has given us free and full forgiveness because of Jesus. That he brings us into his family, he makes us his heirs, even when we're completely unworthy. And keeping that proper view of God's grace at the forefront of our mind will help us avoid being like Jonah. Very happy to be rescued because he thinks God, uh, by God because he thinks he deserves it, but full of hatred for everyone else. And yet God's grace to Jonah is bigger than his sin... And God's determined to use him as his prophet to Nineveh. And so after three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, 
Jonah is unceremoniously vomited back up on shore. After sinking down to the depths, to the belly of Sheol, our prophet is raised from the dead after three days and three nights, ready to go and tell Nineveh that salvation belongs to the Lord. And it's this very gross moment that Jesus takes up and he uses it as a sign of his authenticity. He applies Jonah's strange sign to himself. Uh, He does it in Matthew 12. Matthew 12, Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. And the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, they want a sign from Jesus, proof that he's the one who he really says he is. And Jesus says he'll only give them one sign. He'll give them the sign of Jonah. Just like Jonah was raised from the brink of death, Jesus will be literally raised from the dead after three days and three nights in the grave. The sign is Jesus' resurrection. And anyone who rejects the sign, Jesus says, will be condemned. Now, when Nineveh heard Jonah preach, to give away the the punchline of the story for next week, they heard a resurrected prophet. And they believed the sign and they repented. But Jesus says, even his resurrection from the dead is not going to be enough to convince the Jews. And so they'll be condemned at the last day when he judges. They'll be condemned by the Ninevites who heard a resurrected prophet and turned from their sin. Jonah's, rescue, uh, Jonah's resurrection rather, was proof to the Ninevites that God is the one who saves by grace. And now one greater than Jonah has come and God has endorsed him to us by raising him from the dead and seated him at his right hand. His resurrection is proof that Jesus can offer us true grace and salvation. Salvation belongs to the Lord Jesus. Jonah isn't rescued from a death by a giant fish because he's a Hebrew. He's not rescued because he's a prophet of God. Salvation comes to him because God is in the business of saving people. He delights to do it. He loves to save. And if salvation is available to Jonah, even at the bottom of the ocean, after running as far away from God as he could, it is available here and now. Friends, if you're not a Christian here, the lesson for you is that however far you try and run, you cannot outrun God. His judgment for sin will always find you. And so, since you can never run from Him, run to Him instead. And that's what Augustine, the 4th century bishop from Hippo in North Africa said, 
Uh, He says, since there is one even more deeply inward than yourself, there is no place where you may flee from an angered God except to a God who is pacified. There's absolutely no place for you to flee to. Do you want to flee from him? Rather, flee to him. However low you've gone, however much you've rejected him, he is right there with you. You can't flee from his judgment, so flee to him for his grace. Salvation comes from the Lord. All you have to do is say sorry for running away, thank you for sending a saviour, and please help me to trust and follow you. And he promises he will save you. If you're a Christian, though, the lesson is that your salvation is entirely God's grace to you. You have contributed zero to it. And you will never move beyond that. Salvation comes from the Lord. It is by His grace from start to finish. And remembering that, by creating for yourself a habit of confessing your sin, of turning back to God... It will help you always remember that salvation comes from the Lord. It is his to give. He loves to give it and he gives us the great privilege of telling other people about it. That's the vision that the book of Jonah and and the whole Bible really holds out to us. When we get, when we really understand the truly radical, undeserved nature of God's grace to sinners like us, we'll know what a joy it is to share it with others too. So how about we pray and we ask for God's help to get his grace. Heavenly Father, salvation does indeed come from you, Lord. No matter how far we've run, no matter what we've done in our lives, you are there and you are ready to show grace. You've given us a saviour who sunk beneath the waves of your judgment instead of us and who you raised from the dead after three days and three nights. We thank you that there is salvation in Jesus. Father, we ask that you would help us get grace, help us remember what we're like, what we would be apart from you. Help us to confess and to repent. And help us enjoy the forgiveness that you give us in Jesus. And help us, Father, knowing grace, then to speak about your grace to others. Because no one is beyond the reach of your grace and no one is less deserving of it than we are. And it's for the glory of the Lord Jesus and in his name we pray. Amen.